Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles for me to Romans chapter 16. And um, as we're getting there, this is, we're, we're down to the last three sermons in Romans, which is a remarkable thought, really. Like when I was thinking about it this, this last week, I was, I don't know how many, how long we've been in Romans. Does anybody have a rough guess? It's been a couple years, probably, something like that. Is that right? January of 22. So almost exactly two years. Wow, that's crazy. Anyways, we are in the last three of our sermons in the book of Romans. And if you're a guest today, and this is the first time that you've been here to hear Romans, surprise, you got here in time for the greetings. You know, we're going to look at a text this morning, beloved, that if you look at it on the surface, you think to yourself, this is when I need to remember that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness, right? Because the truth of the matter is, is most times if, you know, we, when we come to the genealogies or we come to greetings, you know, in the word of God, if our tendency is, I'm not saying this is all of us or all of you, but the tendency is to just kind of skip over them, isn't it? It's just kind of skip past them. And yet we need to remember that these greetings that were so much a part of the letters in the ancient um, Near East, These greetings, they must hold value for us. There must be something that we can glean from them and should glean from them. Or the book of Romans would have ended with verses 17 through 20 and 25 through 27 of this very chapter. But by the Spirit of God, Paul pens these specific greetings to specific people and offers greetings from specific people who are with him in Corinth as he's writing this letter to the, the Romans. And what we find, I think, as we study these, these, these names and we look at these greetings is that this is more than just a list of names. This is more than just a list of names that sound strange or maybe some of you might find the name for your next child on this list. They're not, you know, they're, they're more than just a list of names. It's a snapshot. It's a snapshot of the church that was in Rome. And I think we rightly understand them. If we glean from these greetings what we ought, I think we will see insight as to what the church ought to really be. And so let's stand together and let's read together. Romans chapter 16, verses 1 through 16, and then verses 21 through 23. These greetings to Rome and from Corinth. He says, Paul writes, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prissa and Aquila, My fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They're well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stasius. Greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsmen, Herodian. 
Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philogus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. And then jump down to verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Chorus greet you. As you might have guessed, beloved, since this is a different kind of text, you know, it doesn't, it's not like one of the normal texts, you know, in Romans. I mentioned this last week where you get like three points and then an obvious application. Since this is a different kind of text, I'm going to preach it or teach it in a different manner this morning. So here's what we're going to do. This morning's sermon, I don't have an outline for you to follow this morning. You're not going to have to continually look at the screen until the end. Until the end. Because what we're going to do is this. We're just going to, we're going to walk through these greetings. And I want to tell you a little bit about the people that are described here. And then what we're going to do is at the end, I want to draw out a few lessons, okay? A few applications that we can take from this text. But for right now, I just want you to, with a Bible in one hand and your notebook in another, if you take notes, let's just go through this description of, of these people, the, 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 the greetings and the commendations that we find here and see what we can glean from them. Okay? You with me? So let's start here. First of all, I want you to notice what Paul does. He begins by commending a woman named Phoebe to the church in Rome. And notice what he says here. He says in verses 1 and 2, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Sancria that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way that's worthy of the saints and help her and whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So who is this Phoebe? And why would Paul take a moment, you know, at the close of this incredibly, you know, awesome theological treatise to commend her to the church in Rome? Why would he do that? Well, the first thing I want us to notice is this. The first thing that he mentions about her Beloved, is that, is that she is, you know, a sister and a servant of the church in Sancria. Now, her name Phoebe comes from a Greek, the name of the Greek god Phobos. And so it's most likely that she was a Gentile that had been converted to faith in Christ, right? And she had evidently embraced, you know, being a child of the living God and being invested in the body of Christ because she's identified here as a true sister in Christ and one who, who, who worked hard and who served the, the church in Sancria. Now, Sancria was a seaport that was about, it was the seaport that served the city of, of Corinth. It was about nine miles from Corinth where Paul had written this letter in the home of Gaius, right? And so we know about Phoebe, at least from this, is that she must have been a woman of considerable means. She must have been a woman uh, of some sort of wealth because 
you know, she was a patron to Paul. She was a patron to others. She provided the financial means, in other words, for Paul to carry out his ministry. Okay? She provided the financial means for Paul to carry out his ministry. We're familiar with patrons today. You know, like a lot of artists today have patrons. Because if they had to live off their artwork, which is horrendous, they would starve. So they need somebody that is generous towards them that will provide for their needs so they can indulge themselves in thinking that think 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 you know like hunter biden kind of paintings right now there are great artists too right but you've got to have a patron if you're going to be in the arts and and the idea here is that paul needed if he was going to devote himself entirely to the ministry we know he's a tent maker too but if he was going to devote himself to the ministry he needed a patron and, and and phoebe was that and so he wanted her to be greeted he wanted them to to you know to receive her well. But there's more to it than just that. And the more to it is this. Most scholars, in fact, almost all scholars agree that Phoebe was the one who delivered this letter to the church in Rome. It was Phoebe who brought the epistle to the Romans to the Romans. And I want you to think about that for a moment. I want you to, you know, Listen, we have however many copies there are of the Bible that are extant today. That's how many copies we have of the book of Romans, of the letter to the Romans. When Phoebe took this letter to the Romans, guess how many copies we had of that letter? One. One. There weren't any copy machines. You know, there wasn't like a, uh, uh, you know, there weren't several copies of of the, the, the book of Romans lying around. Paul entrusted Phoebe to deliver this masterpiece of theology and gospel proclamation to the church to whom Paul very much wanted to minister to the word. And it was a sacred trust. Paul obviously trusted Phoebe. She had obviously gained his complete confidence because he entrusted to her this great letter that she brought to the church in Rome and so Paul expected that they would, you know, greet her with hospitality and, and with care and with fellowship as a true saint in the Lord. They were to receive her as they would have received Paul. Because the mission she was on was vitally important. In fact, we ought to think about this. And you know, when we think about Phoebe, a woman that, you know, we know nothing about except from here. When we think about Phoebe, we ought to thank God that Phoebe was up to the task of delivering that letter, shouldn't we? Thank God that Phoebe was up to the task because by fulfilling this responsibility, right, she went beyond service to this church in Sancria and she went beyond service to the church even in Rome. Rather, she, searched the, she served the church universal, didn't she? She served us as she served Paul and served the church in Rome. It's in part because of Phoebe's faithfulness and trustworthiness that we have the letter to the Romans today. After this commendation, notice what he does. He then begins a list, a series of greetings, right? And, and the, at the very front are a couple of people with whom we're, we're, I think, a little more acquainted than the others, right? Prissa and Aquila. Look what he says. He says, greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life. To whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Now, Prissa, Prissa or Priscilla and Aquila 
We know them pretty well, right? And Paul describes them here as being fellow workers of his in Christ Jesus, right? Remember how Paul met them. They first met in Corinth when Prissa and Aquila were forced to sort of flee there because they had to leave Rome. That happened in A.D. 49 when the emperor Claudius expelled all the Rome, all the Jews from the capital city. And so they moved to Corinth. And like Paul, they were tent makers, right? And so, you know, birds of a feather flock together. And so these tent makers started spending time with one another. And it was apparently during that time that Paul taught them the word of God. And they, and he discipled them and he encouraged them and built them up in the Lord, right? And their bond was so strong that when Paul left Corinth to go ahead to travel to Ephesus, they tagged along with him. Because they were tent makers and their job was mobile, they found themselves free to go ahead and and travel with Paul. They weren't missionaries necessarily by trade or by calling. That's not what they were. But they were fellow workers along with Paul. And so they moved with him. When he went to Ephesus, they went along. Now, when he left Ephesus, interesting thing happens, they stayed there. And they formed a home church in Ephesus. And while they were busy worshiping in that home church, they would also go on Saturday to the synagogue and worship with the Jews that were there. And while they were there, they heard the eloquent Apollos preach, right? So if you remember the thing about Apollos was, is he was, you know, he's a pretty solid preacher. It's just that the only baptism he knew is the baptism of John, right? And so you remember how the book of Acts describes for us that When Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue, Priscilla and Aquila heard them, and then they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately, right? And now here they were apparently back in Rome with a church meeting in their house. They wouldn't stay there, however. Later on, we'll find out that they move on to Ephesus to help Timothy with his ministry there. So what do we see? Well, we see that they moved around a lot, right? But what we see is that the main context of Priscilla and Aquila's life was the Lord Jesus Christ and how they could serve him most beneficially. How their lives could be used for the expansion and the the benefit of the kingdom of God, right? Their main context of their lives was Christ, whether they were making tents or they were discipling guys like Apollos or they were providing their homes for worship. They were focused on working for Christ. But there's one more thing. There's one more thing for which Paul places them first in his list of greetings. And it's this. It's because they were his faithful friends. They were his faithful friends. And the way we know that is because he said they risked their necks for me. That's where we get the idiom, by the way, by the way, to risk your neck. That's where we get it. They're willing to risk their lives, risk their necks for Paul's own life. Now, we don't know the details. We're not told. The scripture doesn't provide for us the details in which, you know, Priscilla and Aquila were willing to lay down their lives, but they were willing to die for Paul. They were willing to lose their lives so that his faithful ministry could continue. They were willing to die so that Paul might live. And just like that kind of loyalty and faithful friendship is a rare thing in our day, 
It was a rare thing in Paul's. And so he places them first because he is grateful that he has friends that are loyal like that. You can't put a price on that kind of loyalty. They were an amazing couple, Priscilla and Aquila. They were a a powerful twosome for the gospel. And you know what they are? They serve as a really good model for how a marriage partnership can make a difference for the kingdom of God. Then Paul gets into the body of the list. He says to to him, greet my beloved Epinatus, who is the first convert to Christ in Asia. Paul says, when you're you're greeting everybody, greet Epinatus because I have a, a, a soft place in my heart for that guy. And he had a soft place in his heart for Epinatus because he was the first person that Paul led to Christ in Asia, which is modern day Turkey, right? He was the first one, but he wasn't the last one, right? He was the first fruits. In fact, that's what the word is here. The first fruits of, of the great harvest that took place in Asia to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul fondly remembered him as the very first person to respond to the gospel. When he was thinking about all of the ministry that he had done in Asia, the guy that kept, you know, coming to his heart was Epinatus because he was the first one who responded to the gospel. And what that tells us here is this, is that unlike the way that some people like to try to paint Paul, Paul was not a stoical, impersonal, academic theologian. He wasn't at all. He remembered with affection his beloved Epinatus. He remembered with affection and with thanksgiving and with gratitude, right, Priscilla and Aquila. He didn't have a heart of stone, even though his words were tough sometimes. He's a man with a soft heart. He mentions then Mary. He says, greet Mary who's worked hard for you. Mary was a common name in that day. We have no clue really who this lady is, but we do know why Paul commends her. He commends her because she's worked hard for the Romans. And what that means is literally in the the Greek is that she had toiled for them to the point of weariness. She had worked to the point of sweat and exhaustion. In fact, when we look through all these greetings and we see the different forms of the word work, that's the truth of every single one of them, that they worked to the point of weariness. Now, we don't know what she did specifically. I don't have a clue, right? But, but she spent, she was gladly spent for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the body of Christ. And when you think about it, when you think about a guy like Paul who labored like he did to get this kind of a commendation from him, it's pretty special, isn't it? Isn't it? It'd be like Gordon Ramsay telling you, you're a pretty good cook. Or T.J. Watt saying, you're a pretty good football player. Right? It means something coming from someone like Paul. Then we come to Andronicus and Junia. He says, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, they're well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. Now, Andronic and Junius were probably a husband and wife. They could have been a couple of brothers. There's some question about how Junia is translated, whether it should be Junia or Junius. But I'll take it husband and wife. And, and Paul takes them, tells them to greet Andronicus and Junia. And then he gives them several reasons why, right? First thing he says is this. He says, first, I want you to greet them because they are my kinsmen. Now, that might just mean that they're Jews. It might just mean that they're, you know, ethnic Jews as Paul was. Or it could actually mean that they were true relatives, like close relatives of Paul. Relatives, perhaps, that, that had prayed for him to be converted 
to Christ, right? There's really no only there's really no way for us to be sure, but I do think it's interesting that Paul only uses the word kinsman in this verse and then in verses 11 and 21, despite mentioning several Jewish Christians in his greetings. So it could be that these are actually members of his family. Then the second reason he says to greet them is because they'd been prisoners with him, right? Now, at first, if you think about, you know, as much as Paul was in prison, that was that list of people that were imprisoned with him was probably a, a very lengthy one, right? And so there's got to be a reason that he's bringing this up. And so why would he bring this up? I think it makes sense for us to, to see that he would emphasize probably that they were imprisoned because they were imprisoned for the same reason as he, for their faith in Christ, right? For their obedience to the truth for their love for the Lord Jesus Christ, and their willingness to suffer for the sake of the gospel. But greet them because they're people who are willing to go to jail for the sake of Jesus, you know? And then he says also, you know, greet them because they are well known to the apostles. And then last, because they're well known, I'm sorry, they were in Christ before me. So apparently... The, the apostles themselves could testify to Andronicus and Junius' faithfulness, right? They could testify to their spiritual fortitude and to their service for Christ. And so they should be greeted. And then they were in Christ before Paul. Which means that it would take us back to the very earliest days of the infant church in Jerusalem. And so it could very well be that these kinsmen that Paul once greeted, who most probably and most likely prayed for his conversion, they may have even been targets of Paul's persecution of the early church. He says, greet them. Then we come to a particularly interesting name that tells us a little bit about the church. Paul says, greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Lord. Now, here's what makes this one so interesting. Ampliatus was a common slave name, okay? Historians tell us that it was never the name of a free man in Rome. And interestingly enough, if you go to Rome and you decide that you would like to tour the earliest Christian cemetery, which is a subterranean that is underground, catacomb, if you would decide to go and visit that cemetery of Domatilla, you would find there an extremely decorated and elaborate tomb specifically carved out in a distinguished place that bears the name Ampliatus. That one name indicates, again, that he's a slave. But because that tomb is ornate, because it is, it is highly decorated and, and, and elaborately carved, it indicates that Ampliatus, though a slave, was in fact a highly respected leader, even an elder of the church in Rome. It fits the time frame perfectly. Well, why is that a big deal? Here's why that's a big deal. In Rome, Monday through Saturday, as a slave, 
you had absolutely zero influence at all. But on the Lord's day, here was this slave that served most likely as an elder of the church in Rome. Think about this. On the very same Sunday, Ampliatus may be preaching the word of God while his master sits under the preacher's authority in the gathering of the people of God. And then they would leave church and go home. And Ampliatus would gladly be under the authority of his master. When you think about that, it makes this statement in Galatians chapter 3 pretty significant. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Moving on from Ampliatus, Paul says, Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stashes. I wish I had something to say about these guys. I've got nothing. We don't know anything about these guys at all. They are, however, known to the Lord, and they were known to Paul. That's all we can say, right? But then Paul comes to a man named Apelles, and, and his his commendation of Apelles is one of the most significant on the list. He says, greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. And then greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. We'll come to that in a second. But, but think about Apelles here. In English, that word approved doesn't really have the weight that it ought to have. You know, when we read that, it doesn't have the weight that, that it ought to have. It's not as apparent you know, what Paul is saying here. But the Greek word that Paul is using here is the word dokimos. D-O-K-I-M-O-S. Dokimos. It's a word that was used to describe precious metals. Like gold or silver that had been refined in a crucible, crucible, right? All of the dross had been burned off and they were completely and fully pure and genuine. And having passed then that test of purity, purity they were marked with the Greek delta. The beginning of Dokomos, which meant approved, right? Tested, tried. And that's the idea here. Paul is saying, I want you to greet Apelles because Apelles is the real deal. I want you to greet Apelles because you know what, man? That guy has been through it. He's been tested. He's been tried. It has been easy for him. That's a man that has undergone some hardship and some difficulty and some trial. And you know what? He hasn't budged. He's a guy that's been proven true. He's a man of sincere integrity and, and tested faithfulness and character. He is a man of solid faith. He's a real one, we might say. That guy's a real one. And it's a good word. In fact, it's a commendation that ought to be the pursuit of every one of us, shouldn't it? Shouldn't it? Notice too then that, that Paul greets the family of Aristobulus, but not Aristobulus himself, Right? So what's Paul doing? Is he just snubbing Aristobulus? Is that what's going on? So what do we make of that? Well, here's what we make of that. Either Aristobulus was dead at this point, or Aristobulus wasn't a believer. And so he was left out of Christian greetings, right? He was left out of the, the whole grace and peace kind of thing, right? What that shows us here is that the blessings of God are not for everyone indiscriminately, are they? Are they? But they're for the people of God. 
if, 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 it's, if it's the case that Aristobulus just wasn't a believer while those in his household were, if that's the case, then what had happened here is exactly what Jesus said the gospel would do. Jesus said that, you know, from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. All that because of the gospel. Whatever's the case, Paul didn't want to leave out those faithful brothers and sisters in the family of Aristobulus, so he he greets them. And then he, he goes on to another couple of people that we don't know anything about. He says, greet my kinsman Herodian. Again, perhaps a a relative, close relative, or just, you know, a a fellow ethnic Jew. And greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Leaving Narcissus out again, but greeting the family. Then he mentions Tryphena and Tryphosa. If you're having a daughter, don't ever name them one of these words, one of these names. Sounds like typhoid Mary or something, doesn't it? Anyways... Greet these workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Tryphena and Tryphosa. Interesting thing about them is they're probably sisters and their names have a kind of a a cool meaning. And then they're talked about as being workers in the Lord, as toiling for the Lord. Their names can mean either delicate, that's Tryphena, and dainty, that's Tryphosa, which would indicate that they were little women with a big impact, or, or, Their names can be luxurious or luxuriating, right? In other words, that they were refined women, but that they weren't afraid to get their hands dirty, right? They were currently working hard for the Lord, and they were to be greeted because they were valuable. The other woman that's mentioned here, based on her name, Persis, most likely is a woman of Persian descent, right? But the way that Paul refers to her, she's probably older now. She, she, her hardest working days are probably behind her, but she wasn't to be forgotten for her labor in the Lord. She was to be remembered, right? Sometimes it's very easy for a church, isn't it? To forget those that have gone before us and labored hard in the Lord so that we might actually have a church to which to belong. Isn't that true? We kind of forget about them, right? We shouldn't. We shouldn't. We should never do that. In fact, we ought to take... So a clue from, from the situation with Persis. And remember those that have really worked hard and labored so that we might have a place to worship. Then Paul mentions Rufus in his mother. This is a really interesting one. Look what he says in verse 13. He says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who's been a mother to me as well. Now, big question, of course, is who's Rufus? And why does Paul call him someone who's chosen or elect? That's the actual word, elect in the Lord. That's true of every Christian, isn't it? Isn't it? It is. So why use this as the designation, you know, for for Rufus? And why mention Rufus at all? Well, who is this guy? Most commentators will agree, again, that The Gospel of Mark was written in Rome by John Mark of Acts fame, right? And the Apostle Peter. They were in Rome. They were writing this Gospel specifically for the Gentile audience that was in Rome. So that they would read, you know, the the Gospel of Mark. And they could respond to it, you know. It was written in a way that would appeal to those Roman citizens. In fact, if you read Mark, you realize there's not a lot of fluff in Mark, is there? 
It's just, it keeps moving. Boom, boom, boom. It's like, you know. And it still gets treated like the redheaded stepchild of the Gospels, doesn't it? We're going to fix that because that's where we're going after Romans. But there's a specific mention in Mark's Gospel where he describes the scene of Christ being led to Calvary for his crucifixion, right? And Mark slash Peter, they describe the scene by saying, Mark 15 verse 21, they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now, of all of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Mark is the only one that mentions that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. And why do you suppose that he would mention that, that, that he was, Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus? Well, the only logical reason that he would do that is if Alexander and Rufus were well known to the people to whom he was writing, right? That he would be well known, they would be well known to the people in Rome. And so it makes sense that Mark would mention that the man who carried the cross was the father of Rufus only if Rufus was well known to the Roman community. So that's led theologians to kind of, you know, speculate and consider with a holy speculation what might have happened. And in general, they all agree that It's not hard for us, is it, to imagine that Simon would be deeply affected by this encounter with Christ. He sees this beaten, bloodied, abused man that is being led out to 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 die on, on Golgotha. He is compelled to carry, you know, the cross for him. And it would seem that instead of just throwing the cross down at Golgotha and leaving. It's, it's quite possible that he stayed to watch the crucifixion and then himself was eventually converted. And it makes sense that after the Passover, Simon would return to, to Cyrene and would tell his wife and his sons about Christ and his wife, this woman, the mother to Rufus, whom Paul said had been a mother to him and her son Rufus believed. And it may well have been that Alexander did not. And that is why Rufus was referred to as the one who was chosen in the Lord to set him apart from Alexander who wasn't. And then still other theologians will say, and they believe that probably the way in which Rufus got this name, very possible that it could have been through conversations with Paul, that as they would talk about, you know, the the way in which Rufus had been saved, all everything that had to go together in order for Rufus to be saved, beginning with the, you know, seemingly chance encounter of Simon of Cyrene with the Lord Jesus. And we know nothing happens by chance, right? That that led to Paul having conversations with Rufus about the electing and the pursuing love of God. And so he just stuck that name on it, the chosen of the Lord, right? Whatever it is, we don't know any of it with certainty, but it makes sense. Then Paul continues again, mentioning some more guys that we don't know. Asyncretus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Five men of whom, again, we know nothing. Perhaps they're the elders of another home church, I don't know. And then last, Paul greets, look at it, verse 15, Philogius. 
Julia, Nereus and his sister in Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Now, of all the names on this list, the only one that sticks out historically is the name of Nereus. There's an interesting story that goes along with this guy. In AD 95, okay, in AD 95, about 40 years after this letter was written, Rome was rocked by the emperor Domitian's condemnation of two very influential Romans for their faith in Christ. A husband and a wife named Flavius Clemens and the aforementioned Domatilla, right? That Domatilla whose land was used for the Christian catacomb that I mentioned earlier. Flavius was martyred for his faith in Christ, but Domatilla was banished to the island of Pontius. She got the, 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 the lucky flip of the stick because she was of royal blood. She was the niece of Domitian, and it looked kind of bad for Domitian to kill her, so he sent her away to this island. But here's the point of all this. The name of that couple's house manager and personal steward was Nereus. Nereus. And it's quite possible that this Nereus that Paul mentioned was the very person through whom the gospel entered this prominent Roman household and then decades later led to the martyrdom and banishment that stunned all of Rome. So those are the greetings the people Paul wants to say hi to. And if you jump down to verses 21 through 23, Paul will extend the greetings from the brothers that are in Corinth. And we know a lot of these guys. He says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So does Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. We all know Timothy, right? Timothy was Paul's beloved son in the faith, right? Timothy was Paul's right-hand man. He was his, you know, missionary brother and partner. He was later pastor in the, of the church in Ephesus. And he describes him, Paul does, when he says, hey, you know, Timothy, my fellow worker, greet you. He describes him as my fellow worker. Now, he does that everywhere when he's talking about his fellow worker. The Greek word there is synergos, from, from which we get the word synergy, which we know to be the combination of two or more parts, such as the combined effect is greater than the sum of the separate parts, right? And while it was true of, of all of Paul's colleagues, in the case of Timothy, it really carries a greater weight, doesn't it? We know about the close fellowship that they had, the intimate relationship and laboring for the sake of the kingdom. They were of like mind, so much so that Paul saw Timothy as an extension of himself. I can't come, but I'm sending Timothy to you, who's of like mind. I know nobody else of like mind, right? He saw Timothy as a, a dear friend, a young man into whom he could pour himself and in whom he trusted Christ to work powerfully and effectively for the kingdom. He was glad. He was, he was, it gave him pleasure to attach Timothy to this letter. Lucius is one of two guys. He's either one of the prophets and teachers that served in the church in Antioch that, that's described in Acts chapter 13, or, and I think this is it, it's Dr. Luke. It's the Greek name of Dr. Luke who's traveling with Paul on his missionary journeys. We can't be sure, you know, if you, if you pick Lucius, the dude from Antioch, we're not going to draw swords. I think it's Luke. I think it's Dr. Luke, but whatever. 
Then Jason here, most likely he's the Jason that's mentioned in Acts chapter 17. You remember that Paul and Silas were about ready to get thumped in Thessalonica. And Jason showed up, and at the risk of both his property and his life, he took those guys in and befriended him, right? Sosipater, or Sopater, which is his diminutive name, he was one of the noble Bereans. Remember those noble Bereans, the guys who, you know, received the word of God with all eagerness and then examined the scriptures daily to see if Paul was telling the truth or not? That guy. Both these guys must have accompanied Paul to Corinth. Then we read, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. I didn't mention this at the beginning. I should have. I wish I had. I want you to think about this. First of all, you'll remember that in the ancient Near East, and particularly in the Roman Empire, women were not always viewed on par with men, correct? Right? So it makes it very interesting then that Paul would choose a woman, Phoebe, to transport the letter of the Romans, you know, letter that he wrote, the epistle of the Romans, to the Romans, right? You would think he would have picked a dude, but he doesn't. Likewise, interestingly enough, we read, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Tertius... Beloved, had been a slave. So the person who, re, who, who delivers the message is a woman, not highly regarded in Roman culture. And the guy who pens the book of Romans is a former slave. There's no, like, you know, hierarchy of anything going on here, is there? Is there? Tertius was a slave. His name means third one. That's how you named slaves. It was a common thing to do, you know. The first slave, you know, was called Primus. And the second one was called Segundus. And the third one was called Tertius. And the fourth one was called, anybody want to try? Quartus. And then Quintus, right? Like you just, you didn't waste time sitting down coming up with good names. Like nobody was Googling best, you know, slave names. Like we do with baby names, right? We have like a thousand, a list of a thousand baby names. And you're supposed to winnow that down to one. Like, you didn't do that with slaves. You just nip first one, second one, third one, fourth one, fifth one. That's what you did. Right? We, we make more effort in naming our animals than they did slaves. Right? So you have this former slave who served as the stenographer, the greatest doctrinal treaties ever written. How about that? Then last we read, Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Gaius, we know who that guy is. Gaius is Gaius of Corinth, whom Paul had baptized, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 14. He was a man, apparently, that was known for great hospitality, serving not only as Paul's host, but, but as a host and a benefactor to the whole church, and opening up his house to the church meetings, right? Then he mentions Erastus. He's the only guy on here that's really a man of station and importance, a guy that holds an official title, right? He was the, the city treasurer, for Corinth. And he was a man of faith. His position as a city official apparently did not hinder him from faithfully proclaiming Christ with Paul and working for the good of the church. I want you to think about that sometimes. When we talk about, well, I would talk about Jesus at work, but... Now, I'm not saying, you know, you just abandon what you're doing at work and not be a good worker. I'm not saying that. And I'm not saying you just, just you scrap it all and say, you know what? From now on, I'm not working for my boss. I'm working for Jesus, and I'm going to go in here. I'm going to preach and do nothing else but preach. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying I think we ought to be a little more intentional about taking advantage of opportunities to speak about Christ and those opportunities present themselves. Don't you? Don't you? It didn't hinder him from fully proclaiming Christ. 
and working for the good in the church. And then in the very same sentence, very same breath is this socially important man. Paul mentions Cordus. Again, he's a slave about whom we know nothing. And yet Paul deems him significant enough to mention. So what do we see when we look at this? Well, when we look at this list of Jews and Gentiles and men and women and slave and free, all of them, you know, together in the body of Christ, you know what it does? Here's what it does. Here's what it ought to do. It really does reinforce the truth that the natural things that make for distinctions among men and women in our world, they mean absolutely nothing at the foot of the cross. Isn't that true? There's no room for boasting. There's no room for, for, you know, magnifying yourself. Listen, man, newsflash, God didn't choose his people according to human standards. He didn't look on you and go, oh, oh, that person's awesome right there. He didn't do that. Because guess what? None of us are awesome by fallen nature, are we? except awesomely bad sinners, right? He doesn't do that. That's not how it works. God doesn't choose his people according to human standards. Everyone who's in Christ needs the sacrifice of a crucified Savior in their place. And it's the same for all of us. Whether you consider yourself wise or foolish, or whether you consider yourself to be rich or poor, or honorable or dishonorable, or or weak or strong, or noble or despised. Listen, that any of us is saved is the result of God's sovereign grace and Christ's saving death and his resurrection. Right? Right? There's no room for us to brag about any of ourselves. And then second, I hope that we're seeing here with me, I hope you're seeing with me, the realness of the people about whom we read in the Scriptures. These are real people, man. And I think that sometimes if we're not careful, we can forget that these people were people just like us. Aren't they? They're just like us. Paul writes to... To these ancient brothers and sisters, he writes to them with joy and gratitude and with love. Despite the fact that, you know what? They're, they're, they're works in progress, are they not? Yes, they've been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, all their sins, past, present, and future, are now gone because Christ paid the debt in full. But they are not yet what the grace of God is going to make them, are they? And so it's not like, hey, you know... I want you to, to greet Mary and, and greet Persis and greet the typhoid sisters. But you tell Epinatus, he better get his stuff in one sock, man. It's not like that. It's not like that at all. There's this unity of heart, right? And unity of mind. And this earnestness for for brother, and, 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 and this love, and this joy, and this gratitude. And it's the same kind of spirit, beloved, that is to permeate our relationships here. Right? Are you hearing me? And in this text, I think we find four really important observations about what the church ought to be. So you've had a break all morning, you haven't had to write anything down. Now you need to start writing. I'm going to give you four things. Okay, in closing, and that means the next 20 minutes, maybe, maybe less. But just in closing, these four points, look at it. First one I want to make is this, look at the screen. The church is composed of a diverse group of people who are in Christ. 
That's what defines them. They're in Christ, okay? The church, the church is composed of a, of a vast different, a vastly different group of people, right? None of us is, is the same as anybody else in here, are we? Are we? Like we're very different from one another. And, and one of the testimonies to God's grace is the fact that we have a relationship at all because probably many of us would not have a relationship with anyone else in this room if it were not for the grace of God in Christ. Isn't that true? And so what is of first importance about each one of us is that we are in Christ. In Christ. That is the paramount declaration that can be true about anybody. That is the foremost thing that can be said about anyone, that they are in Christ. Nothing matters more than that. I'm going to say it again. Nothing matters more than that. That you're in Christ. In fact, it's been the emphasis throughout this epistle, hasn't it? It's been the emphasis throughout this epistle. And here we see it again. Consider again the descriptions Paul descriptions that Paul uses here. In Christ Jesus, first convert to Christ, in Christ before me, beloved of the Lord, approved in Christ, chosen in the Lord, fellow worker in Christ. Here's the point. Being in Christ is the essential characteristic of any Christian. Right? Every person. Here's what that means. Every person here, think about it. That Paul mentions, like us, everybody on this list had a past in Adam, didn't they? Paul doesn't mention it, but every single one of them had a past in Adam. They were all rebels. They were all enemies of God. They were all children of wrath. They were all rejectors and, 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 and haters of God. And they evidenced that in various ways, in the ways that they lived, right? And in what they believed. They were in Adam and they were outside of Christ, right? Their sin clung to their souls, but no longer. Because now they're in Christ. And through they're in Christ through faith in His righteous life, His atoning death, and His glorious resurrection. Man, they had left. Praise God. They had left their old sinful lives in Adam, and they now became new creations in Christ. Because if anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation, right? The old has passed away, and the new has come. In Christ, they'd been regenerated, renewed. They were born again, born from above. In Christ, they were dead to sin and alive now to God. In Christ, they no longer were, com- were obligated to fulfill their sinful desires, but now they could actually fulfill their desires for holiness and godliness that God implanted to them when they became in Christ, right? In Christ, they were free from condemnation they no longer walked according to the flesh but according to the spirit which means they pursued holiness in christ they were no longer fleshly minded but they set their minds on the things of the spirit in christ they were adopted and justified and redeemed and reconciled and more than conquerors through him who loved us in christ they were now able to call upon god as abba father and not cringe away and hide from him as judge In Christ, they presented themselves as living sacrifices, as the act of spiritual worship. They were no longer being conformed to the world, whatever part of the world they'd been delivered from. But now they were being transformed by the renewing of their minds. Their sin debt had been paid by Christ. They were clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And they had the promise of eternal life and the hope of heaven as joint heirs with Christ of the life to come. All this because they were in Christ. Now, I want you to hear me again when I say this. The church is composed of a diverse group of people who are in 
Christ, not just church attenders, not just religious observers, not just those that are compelled by external motivations to come to church. None of those things make you a Christian. None of those things make you a Christian. It's not a matter of knowing theology. It's not a matter of just attending church. It's not a matter even of, I had a spiritual, emotional experience sometime, one time, a long time ago. It's not a matter of possessing good morality. It's being united to Christ by faith in His death and His burial and His resurrection. The true church is composed of people from every walk of life who have this in common. They are in Christ and Christ is in them by the Holy Spirit of the living God. Philip Hughes says wisely the expression in Christ the expression in Christ sums up as briefly and as profoundly as possible the inexhaustible significance of man's true redemption. It speaks of security in Him who has Himself borne in His own body the judgment of God against our sin. It speaks of acceptance in Him with whom alone God is well pleased. It speaks of assurance for the future in Him who is the resurrection and the life. It speaks of the inheritance of glory in Him who as the only begotten Son is the sole heir of God. It speaks of participation in the divine nature in Him who is the everlasting Word. It speaks of knowing the truth and being free in that truth in Him who Himself is the truth. All this and very much more than can ever be expressed in human language is meant by being in Christ. Beloved, everybody's either in Adam by nature, by birth, or you are in Christ by grace and the new birth. And the difference between them, the difference between the two could not be more stark. To be in Adam means eternal death in hell. To be in Christ means eternal life in heaven. The church is made up of people who are in Christ. Not outside. Not faking it. Not faking it till you make it. I've heard people say that sometimes. I'm just, I just fake it till I make it. You can't do that in Christianity. You can't do that with Christ. You might do that in other things. You can't do it with, with Jesus. When we look at these greetings, we see clearly the thing that united all these different people was that they were in Christ. Second thing, the church is composed of those who are growing in Christ through sound doctrine. The church is composed of those who are growing in Christ through sound doctrine. Now you might ask, preacher, where'd you get that one? You just picked that one out of the air. I really didn't. I'll tell you where I get this. I'll tell you where I draw that observation. It's from the fact that Paul addressed this letter, right? Universally acclaimed as the greatest doctrinal treatise in all of Scripture, Paul sends that letter to a church that's filled with normal, everyday people. He sends it to a a church 
that is just filled up with, with your normal folks, right? And he expected that they would benefit from it. He expected that slaves would hear these words and benefit from it. He expected that free men would hear these words and expect it and benefit from it. He expected that men of high station and low station, women of high station or low station, that they would hear these words and these words would benefit them. This letter was to real ordinary people, not professional theologians. And what that tells us, beloved, when I look at that list and I consider the letter that was sent, like, I mean, here's the thing, Right? The, doc, the letter to the, to the Romans, again, is the greatest letter ever written. And yet when I see the list of names to whom Paul writes it, what that tells me is that Christian doctrine is important for every Christian, for you and me, and not just for theologians or for the more, quote, spiritually advanced. You hearing me? It's it's It's... Paul writes this letter filled with sound doctrine because the Christian faith is established, beloved, by a specific and alterable message with unambiguous results and implications. Here's what I mean by that. Romans is written so that we understand that you can't just believe whatever you want to believe and tack a little Jesus onto it and call it okay. And why? Because God has spoken. Because God has spoken. And he expects to be heard. You dads out there, when you speak in your home, what do you expect? Do you, what do you expect? Do you expect everybody to just ignore you? When you give commands in your home, do you just expect your kids to do whatever they feel like doing? And then tack a little Jesus onto it? Well, I felt moved by the Spirit to do this, Dad, not obey you. Are you okay with that? Of course you're not. Of course you're not. God has spoken. He has spoken clearly so that we might understand. Because sound doctrine is vital to spiritual life. Think about what Paul told Timothy in his first letter. He said to him these words. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 16. And you can't blow it off just because Timothy was a pastor. Because it's very important what he says here. Listen to what he says. He says, keep a close watch on yourself. He's talking to Timothy. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. He says, persist in this on your doctrine. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save, get this now, both yourself and your hearers. That's not, those are not idle words by Paul. Sound doctrine, beloved, is a sacred trust given from God to the apostles and the prophets and delivered unto us, right? And we're to receive it with gladness and with joy and with hearts of obedience and thanksgiving. Sound doctrine is the difference between, listen to me, almost true and true. Are you hearing me? Between almost true and true. Well, why does that matter? Because let's be honest here. Satan's not as stupid as we like to portray him. When Satan creates a false gospel, I mean, yeah, there are those ones that we can look at, you know, like the J-dubs and the Mormons, right? All that. And we, they're, they're out to left field, right? Or the Scientologists or whoever, like, you got to be an absolute moron to buy into Scientology, don't you? Right? Or have too much money that you know what to do with, right? If you're Satan, what are you going to do? If you want to create a gospel that's going to deceive, you don't come up with something that's so far out in left field, people look at it, even unsaved people, and go, that's, that's stupid, right? Magic underwear, that's dumb, right? 
No. You make something. It is so, so close. That but for a few errors, fundamental flaws, it would be true. And in this, in this age of deception, you need sound doctrine so you don't get picked off. It's the difference between almost true and true. And the difference between almost true and true is the difference between death and life. Paul entrusted this powerful sound doctrine to them and to us because truth promotes life and righteousness. The goal, he says, of our teaching, of our doctrine, he tells Timothy, the aim of it is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And when he, when he encourages Timothy in his ministry, he tells him very clearly, you know, why he must preach, the faithfully, preach faithfully the truth of, of the Word of God. Preach faithfully sound doctrine. Here's why. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming, what? When people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Beloved, we are there today, are we not? Sound doctrine is what's going to keep you from being tossed to and fro by, from every, you know, by the waves and carried away by every wind of doctrine because it gets you, gives you a solid foundation on which to rest your hope and your faith. Amen. And the church is composed of people that are growing in Christ and growing in sound doctrine. And that's why the pastor, and not only the pastor, Paul says to, to Titus, must hold firm, for, firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. I like the words of Charles Spurgeon. Surprise. I like the words of Charles Spurgeon when he puts it very simply here. He just says, nothing makes a man so virtuous as a belief of the truth. Then he says this. When he says belief, by the way, he doesn't just mean an intellectual understanding. When, when Spurgeon uses the word belief, he's talking about a, a reception of the truth into the heart and the soul that issues forth in a different way of thinking, feeling, and acting. One that is in line with the Holy Spirit, Okay. So let me just read this again. He says, Nothing makes a man so virtuous as belief of the truth. A lying doctrine will soon beget a lying practice. A man cannot have an erroneous belief without by and by having an erroneous life. I believe the one thing naturally begets the other thing. Beloved, he's right. Isn't he right? He's right. Love sound doctrine. Get sound doctrine. Insist on sound doctrine. Contend for sound doctrine. And let that doctrine shape your thinking and your living and your desires because that's what doctrine is designed to do. Not just puff up with knowledge, but refine and conform the soul to the image of Christ. Sound doctrine leads to life. Third thing, third observation that comes out of this. 
is that the church is a family and everybody in it matters. The church is a family and everybody in it matters. Everybody from, you know, Ampliatus to Cordus, from Phoebe to Erastus, everybody matters. Think of the range of people that Paul mentions in these greetings. And, you know, I think it's interesting. They're all in the same church. You know, if they went by the church growth model that, that we, you know, that the world put, puts forth now is, you know, your church is to be composed of a homogenous unit of people. They're all supposed to be the same, think the same, make the same amount of money, kind of dress the same, do the same things. Like, that's what you're supposed to do. You create a church where everybody basically is like everybody else, right? That was the great big, you know, Rick Warren church push thing back in the 90s and early 2000s, so much so that you'd come up with the, the ideal person that you're trying to reach for your congregation, and you'd name them something. Like, I think we had, this is before my time, we had like West Salem Wanda, Wally and West Salem Wanda. I'm not kidding. And they were like the ones you were supposed to target. I think it's very interesting. When I read this list of people, right, you got businessmen and women, you got a city treasurer, you got a personal steward, you got slaves, free men, Jews and Gentiles, right? You got people that are drastically different from one another, both ethnicity and station in life. And yet Paul uses terms like brother and sister, my beloved, my kinsman. He even emphasizes to them that they're to practice a holy kiss with one another. Now think about that. Please understand it. Paul's not creating a new ordinance here. You know, this is not a new church ordinance like, you know, Lord's Supper, baptism and holy kiss, right? It's not what he's doing here. In that time, you know, in the ancient Near East and in, 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 in you know, the, in Europe and whatnot, there, there was a, a habit in which people would often greet one another with a, either a kiss on the cheek, you know, like the thing or on the forehead or whatever, right? But you would usually only do that with somebody that was, you know, of a similar station in life. And you really didn't mean anything by it. It was just kind of like, hey, how you doing? Right? That's it. And so Paul is saying, look, you know that kiss that y'all do when you, when you greet one another? How about you make it mean something? How about when, when, when you kiss one another, when you greet one another, that you use that kiss as a picture of genuine, heartfelt love and welcome and reception into the the body of Christ, right? Like, how about you use that, not just with those who are in the same station in life, but with all of your brothers and sisters, and let it be a reflection of a heart that welcomes one another in Christ. That's the idea. Now, I'm not saying now that we all need to start going around, you know, kissing one another. That's not what I'm saying. I know some of y'all are germaphobes, you would freak out, right? I'm not saying that. You know, we can, we can satisfy ourselves with a holy hug or a handshake or even a holy fist bump, you know. But the idea here is that our love for one another should be genuine. And it should be all-encompassing and not just restricted to people like us because everybody in this body matters. You know, I was thinking about this this week. I, I, it hit me. It struck me. Not that we do this a lot. We don't do this a lot. But it struck me. Gretchen and I were sitting on the couch, right? And 
we were supposed to be watching TV, which, you know, we got the TV up there, right? We're, I forget what we were watching. Some, usually it's a cooking show. I won't comment. But we're sitting there and we're supposed to be watching the show. And I noticed that both of us were actually not looking at the big screen in our, in our living room. We were looking at the little screen in our hands and commenting to one another about the things that we were looking at on the little screen in our hands when we were supposed to be together watching, you know, a food show. I don't know why I can't be football all the time. I don't understand that. But, we're, you know, we're supposed to be commenting on this food show. And, I, and I, I thought about this. You know, here's the truth about our existence in this world right now, beloved. There, everything is so individualistic, isn't it? Isn't it? Everything is so incredibly individualistic. And we lie to ourselves about what true fellowship is. Like we think virtual reality is fellowship with somebody. It's not. You know? But so much of our life is boiled down to that little screen in our hands, isn't it? Or our computer screens. Or the TV screens on our walls. But listen to me. The church of Christ is not made up of disconnected individuals. And that's why this whole idea of I can stay at home and worship on live stream is a crock of garbage. No, you can't. Because you can't practice anything Scripture tells you to practice with your brothers and sisters in Christ by staring at a little stupid screen. You can't. No matter how, quote, entertained you were or how edifying the pastor's sermon was. Church is not made up of disconnected individuals. It's a family where we worship the Lord together and we study God's word together and we love one another and we forgive one another and we find accountability together and we support one another and we encourage and exhort one another and we admonish one another when need be and we look for opportunities to serve one another and we make disciples together, right? There's nothing in the world like the family of God. Nothing. And every spiritual sibling in the household of God matters. Matters. You hearing me? Then the last thing. In this text, I observe Paul telling us that the church is to be composed of a people who labor together for the Lord. I... Again, consider the terms that Paul uses to describe these people here. Servant of the church. Fellow workers. Worked hard. Workers in the Lord, right? Those are all phrases that Paul uses to describe these Christians in Rome. He doesn't mention anybody here who's lazy or a slacker, does he? Does he? He doesn't mention anybody here who just kind of hangs out to get what they can get. And that's it. Thank you very much. And I'm on my way. I paid my tip at the front and I got what I was looking for. There it is. That's all I need. We don't read that at all, do we? Do we? These phrases that Paul uses to describe the church in Rome makes it sound like, because it was true, that the church was the hub and the center of their lives. And they worked together for the sake of the Lord and of His kingdom, for magnifying the Lord Jesus Christ. There wasn't anybody there that was disinterested, right? He doesn't hey, say, hey, hey, greet, you know, Tertius or Segundo. Slacker in the Lord. Disinterested in Jesus. Uninvolved in the body of Christ. Give him a title so he'll do something. 
doesn't do that, does he? Does he? The church was the hub and it was the center of their lives. And nobody was disinterested and no one was a slacker. And they used their gifts for the edification of the body of Christ and for the spread of the gospel. Because it wasn't about them. It wasn't about me. The church wasn't about me. It's about Christ. It's about serving my brothers and sisters in Christ. It was about making the name of Christ known. It was about magnifying the name of Christ in this dark world. It was about exalting the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what this is about, right? And everybody got the memo. They all got it. They all understood it. And what do you think motivated them to serve the Lord like this? Fear of public flogging. No, that wasn't it. What do you think motivated them? It was the same thing that needs to fuel our service, beloved. Love and worship and gratefulness for God's gracious love and for the rescue of our souls. Brian Chapel says, if thankfulness does not move us to serve God, then we do not truly understand who our God is and what he has done on our behalf. Without gratitude for Christ's sacrificial love, our duty, oh, listen to this. He's so right on. He says, our duty will become nothing more than drudgery. And our God, listen now, nothing more than a dissatisfied boss. Oof. If I really know everything from which I've been delivered, the cost of that deliverance, and the gracious, sovereign love that is the source. And you know what? Nobody will have to beg me to work hard for the Lord. Nobody will have to beg me to serve the Lord. Beloved, how are you doing? Serving Christ in His kingdom. How are you working for His glory in your home and in your church, in this church and in the world? Let's be a people who labor together for the Lord's sake and for His glory, who Himself spared no cost or effort to redeem our sin-wrecked souls. So there you have it. Here's the greetings. I'll close with this thought. Oftentimes, in pre-marriage counseling, you guys get a sneak preview, Gretchen and I will ask people, the prospective husband and wife, will often ask this question. We'll say, what words would you like to describe your marriage in five to ten years? What words, what adjectives would you like to have that describe your marriage in five or ten years. The point of that question, beloved, is, is this. The point of that question is, those things don't just happen. You want to be known as hospitable? It doesn't just happen. You want to be known as faithful and somebody with, with genuine wisdom? You don't just fall into that. Those things don't just happen. You've got to be intentional. Now let me ask you something. If you were on this list, how would you have liked for Paul to describe you 
What would you like for Paul to say about you? And know that Paul can't lie. Not in the Holy Spirit, he can't. What would you want him to say? For me, I think I would like for Paul to say about me what he says about Apelles. Approved in Christ. But it won't just happen, will it? Will it? It won't just happen. And we need to wake up to that. For those of you who are here and saying, well, I, I know, but God's the one that's got to save me. Like, I don't have anything, any control over that. No, you listen to me. God doesn't say to you, you sit still until I zap you and save you. And then serve Christ. That's not what he says at all. Don't you blame God for your own hardened heart. Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel because the kingdom's at hand. It's here right now. Jesus has come. You've heard the gospel. You know you need a savior. You know that Christ must deliver you from the wrath to come that you deserve for your sins. And that it's only through faith in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, in his ascension to the right hand of God the Father. It's only in his perfect life that he has lived that you can receive through faith in him the righteousness that you need to stand before God and the forgiveness of your sins that separate you from the holy God. And God doesn't say, y'all sit still. Y'all just be there for a while. That's not what he says. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Right? Right? Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will in no way cast out. So come to him. Come to him. Trust Christ. So that you can be found in him. Grow through sound doctrine. Read it. Hear it. Respond to it. Receive it. Right? Find your place in the family of God. Do something here. Be found. You know, and work for the, for the, for the power of, in the power of the Spirit, for the glory of God, and for the praise of Jesus Christ. I don't like the New England Patriots. I've never liked them. I think they're a bunch of cheaters. But the one thing that I will say that has always stuck with me from Bill Belichick are the words he said. The words that he always said to his players. Just do your job. Do your job, right? It's amazing how everything kind of loses its confusion and comes into crystal clarity when it's like, hey man, just do what's in front of you. Just do what you're told to do. Do what the word says. Do it. Just do what scripture says. Do it. And I'm admonishing you, brothers and sisters, to do what scripture says. So that if Paul were to write of you, he would have words of commendation and thankfulness to the Lord.